11. The sea wave which traveled southward, when we see that, on the contrary, a wave of even greater proportions traveled toward the shores of North America, we seem forced to the conclusion that the center of the subterranean action must have been so far to the west that the sea wave generated by it had a free course to the shores of California, be this as it may. There can be no doubt that the wave which swept the shores of Southern California, rising upward of 60 feet above the ordinary sea level, was absolutely the most imposing of all the indirect effects of the great earthquake, when we consider that even in San Pedro Bay, fully 5,000 miles from the center of disturbance, a wave twice the height of an ordinary house rolled in with unspeakable violence only a few hours after the occurrence of the earth throw. We are most strikingly impressed with the tremendous energy of the Earth's movement, turning to the open ocean. Let us track the great wave on its course past the multitudinous islands which dot the surface of the Pacific. The inhabitants of the Sandwich Islands, which lie about 6,300 miles from Arica, might have imagined themselves safe from any effects which could be produced by an earthquake taking place so far away from them. But on the night between August 13th and 14th, the sea around this island group rose in a surprising manner, insomuch that many thought the islands were sinking, and would shortly subside altogether beneath the waves. Some of the smaller islands, indeed, were for a time completely submerged. Before long, however, the sea fell again, and as it did so the observers found it impossible to resist the impression that the islands were rising bodily out of the water. For no less than three days this strange oscillation of the sea continued to be experienced. The most remarkable ebbs and floods being noticed at Honolulu, on the island of Wohu, but the sea waves swept onward far beyond these islands, at Yokohama, in Japan, more than 10,500 miles from Arica, an enormous wave poured in on August 14th, but at one hour we had no satisfactory record, so far as distance is concerned, this wave affords most surprising evidence of the stupendous nature of the disturbance to which the waters of the Pacific Ocean had been subjected. The whole circumference of the earth is but 25,000 miles, so that this wave had traveled over a distance considerably greater than two-fifths of the earth's circumference, a distance which the swiftest of our ships could not traverse in less than six or seven weeks had been swept over by this enormous undulation in the course of a few hours. More complete details reach us from the southern Pacific. Shortly before midnight the Marquesas Isles and the low-lying Tuamota group were visited by the great wave and some of these islands were completely submerged by it. The lonely Opara Isle, where the steamers which run between Panama and New Zealand had their coaling station, was visited at about half past eleven in the evening by a billow which swept away a portion of the coal depot. Afterward great waves came rolling in at intervals of about twenty minutes, and several days elapsed before the sea resumed its ordinary ebb and flow. It was not until about half past two on the morning of August 14th that the Samoa Isles sometimes called the Navigator Islands were visited by the great wave. The watchmen startled the inhabitants from their sleep by the cry that the sea was about to overwhelm them, and already, when the terrified people rushed from their houses, the sea was found to have risen far above the highest water mark, but it presently began to sink again, and then commenced a series of oscillations, which lasted for several days and were of a very remarkable nature. Once in every quarter of an hour the sea rose and fell, but it was noticed that it rose twice as rapidly as it sank. This peculiarity is well worth remarking. The eminent physicist Mallet speaks thus we follow Lyell's quotation about the waves which traverse an open sea, the great sea wave, advancing at the rate of several miles in a minute, consists, in the deep ocean, of a long, low swell of enormous volume, 
having an equal slope before and behind, and that so gentle that it might pass under a ship without being noticed, but when it reaches the edge of soundings, its front slope becomes short and steep, while its rear slope is long and gentle. On the shores visited by such a wave, the sea would appear to arise more rapidly than it sank. We have seen that this happened on the shores of the Samoa group, and therefore the way in which the sea rose and fell on the days following the great earthquake gave significant evidence of the nature of the sea bottom in the neighborhood of these islands, as the change of the great waves figure could not have been quickly communicated. We may conclude with certainty that the Samoan islands are the summits of lofty mountains, whose sloping sides extend far toward the east. This conclusion affords interesting evidence of the necessity of observing even the seemingly trifling details of important phenomena. The wave which visited the New Zealand Isles was altogether different in character, affording a noteworthy illustration of another remark of Mallet's. He says that where the sea bottom slopes in such a way that there is water of some depth close inshore, the great wave may roll in and do little damage, and we have seen that so it happened in the case of the Samoan Islands, but he adds that, where the shore is shelving there will be first a retreat of the water, and then the wave will break upon the beach and roll far in upon the land. This is precisely what happened when the great wave reached the eastern shores of New Zealand, which are known to shelve down to very shallow water, continuing far away to sea toward the east. At about half past three on the morning of August 14th the water began to retreat in a singular manner from the port of Littleton, on the eastern shores of the southernmost of the New Zealand islands. At length the whole port was left entirely dry, and so remained for about twenty minutes. Then the water was seen returning like a wall of foam ten or twelve feet in height, which rushed with a tremendous noise upon the port and town. Toward five o'clock the water again retired, very slowly as before, not reaching its lowest ebb until six. An hour later a second huge wave inundated the port. Four times the sea retired and returned with great power at intervals of about two hours. Afterward the oscillation of the water was less considerable, but it had not wholly ceased until August 17th, and only on the 18th did the regular ebb and flow of the tide recommence. Around the Samoa group the water rose and fell once in every 15 minutes, while on the shores of New Zealand each oscillation lasted no less than two hours. Doubtless the different depths of water, the irregular conformation of the island groups, and other like circumstances were principally concerned in producing these singular variations, yet they do not seem fully sufficient to account for so wide a range of difference. Possibly a cause yet unnoticed may have had something to do with the peculiarity. In waves of such enormous extent it would be quite impossible to determine whether the course of the wave motion was directed full upon a line of shore or more or less obliquely. It is clear that in the former case the waves would seem to follow each other more swiftly than in the latter even though there were no difference in their velocity. Far on beyond the shores of New Zealand the great wave coursed, reaching at length the coast of Australia. At dawn of August 14th Moreton Bay was visited by five well-marked waves. At Newcastle, on the Hunter River, the sea rose and fell several times in a remarkable manner. The oscillatory motion commencing at half-past six in the morning, but the most significant evidence of the extent to which the sea wave traveled in this direction was afforded at Port Ferry, Belfast. South Victoria. Here the oscillation of the water was distinctly perceived at midday on August 14th, and yet, to reach this point, the sea wave must not only have traveled on a circuitous course nearly equal in length to half the circumference of the earth, but must have passed through Bass's Straits, between Australia and Van Diemen's Land, and so have lost a considerable portion of its force and dimensions. 
1. W.L. Remember that had not the effects of the earth shock on the water been limited by the shores of South America, a wave of disturbance equal in extent to that which traveled westward would have swept toward the east. We see that the force of the shock was sufficient to have disturbed the waters of an ocean covering the whole surface of the earth, for the sea waves which reached Yokohama in one direction and Port Ferry in another had each traversed a distance nearly equal to half the earth's circumference, so that if the surface of the earth were all sea, waves setting out in opposite directions from the center of disturbance would have met each other at the antipodes of their starting point. It is impossible to contemplate the effects which followed the great earthquake the passage of a sea wave of enormous volume over fully one-third of the Earth's surface, and the force with which, on the farthermost limits of its range, the wave rolled in upon shores more than 10,000 miles from its starting place without feeling that those geologists are right who deny that the subterranean forces of the Earth are diminishing in intensity. It may be difficult, perhaps to a look on the effects which are ascribed to ancient earth throws without imagining for a while that the power of modern earthquakes is altogether less. But when we consider fairly the share which time had in those ancient processes of change, when we see that while mountain ranges were being upheft or valleys depressed to their present position, race after race, and type after type appeared on the earth, and lived out the long lives which belong to a races and two types. We are recalled to the remembrance of the great work which the Earth's subterranean forces are still engaged upon. Even now continents are being slowly depressed or upheft, even now mountain ranges are being raised to a new level. Tablelands are in process of formation, and great valleys are being gradually scooped out. It may need an occasional outburst, such as the earthquake of August, 1868, to remind us that great forces are at work beneath the Earth's surface. But, in reality, the signs of change have long been noted. Old shorelines shift their place. Old soundings vary. The sea advances in one place and retires in another. On every side nature's plastic hand is at work modeling and remodeling the earth. In order that it may always be a fit abode for those who are to dwell upon it. The P-H-O-S-P-H-O-R-E-S-C-N-D-C from Studies of Animated Nature. By W.S. Dallas. It is not merely on land that this phenomenon of phosphorescence is to be seen in living forms among marine animals. Indeed, it is a phenomenon much more general, much more splendid, and, we may add, much more familiar to those who live on our coasts. There must be many in the British Isles who have never had the opportunity of seeing the light of the glow worm, but there can be few of those who have frequented in summer any part of our coasts, who have never seen that beautiful greenish light which is then so often visible, especially on our southern shores. When the water is disturbed by the blade of an oar or the prow of a boat or ship, in some cases, even on our own shores, the phenomenon is much more brilliant, every rippling wave being crested with a line of the same peculiar light, and in warmer seas exhibitions of this kind are much more common. It is now known that this light is due to a minute living form, to which we will afterward return, but before going on to speak in some detail of the organisms to which the phosphorescence of the sea is due. It will be as well to mention that the kind of phosphorescence just spoken of is only one mode in which the phenomenon is exhibited on the ocean, though sometimes the light is shown in continuous lines whenever the surface is disturbed, at other times, and, according to M. de Caterfidges, more commonly, the light appears only in minute sparks, which, however numerous, never coalesce, in the little channel known as the sun de shows, he writes, I have seen on a dark night each stroke of the orc handle as it were, myriads of stars, and the wake of the craft appeared in a manner besprinkled with diamonds, when such is the case the phosphorescence is due to various minute animals, 
especially crustaceans, that island creatures which, microscopically small as they are, are yet constructed more or less on the type of the lobster or crayfish, at other times, again, the phosphorescence is still more partial, great domes of pale gold with long streamers, to use the eloquent words of Professor Martin Duncan, move slowly along in endless succession, small silvery discs swim, now enlarging and now contracting, and here and there a green or bluish gleam marks the course of a tiny, but rapidly rising and sinking globe, hour after hour the procession passes by, and the fishermen hauling in their nets from the midst drag out liquid light, and the soft sea jellies, crushed and torn piecemeal, shine in every clinging particle, the night grows dark, the wind rises and is cold, and the tide changes, so does the luminosity of the sea, the pale specters below the surface sink deeper, and are lost to sight, but the increasing waves are tinged here and there with green and white, and often along a line, where the fresh water is mixing with the salt in an estuary, there is a brightness so intense that boats and shores are visible, but if such sights are to be seen on the surface, what must not be the phosphorescence of the depths, every sea pen is glorious in its light, in fact, nearly every eight-armed Alcyonarian is thus resplendent, and the social pyrosoma, bulky and a free swimmer, glows like a bar of hot metal with a white and green radiance, such accounts are enough to indicate how varied and how general a phenomenon is the phosphorescence of the sea. To take notice of one tithe of the points of interest summed up in the paragraph just quoted would occupy many pages, and we must therefore confine the attention to a few of the most interesting facts relating to marine phosphorescence. We will return to that form of marine luminosity to which we first referred, what is known as the general or diffused phosphorescence of the sea. From this mode of describing it the reader must not infer that the surface of the ocean is ever to be seen all aglow in one sheet of continuous light. So far, at least, as was ever observed by Anne de Caterfages, who studied this phenomenon carefully and during long periods on the coasts of Brittany and elsewhere, no light was visible when the surface of the sea was perfectly still. On the other hand, when the sea exhibits in a high degree the phenomenon of diffused phosphorescence no disturbance can be too slight to cause the water to shine with that peculiar characteristic gleam. Drop but a grain of sand upon its surface, and you will see a point of light marking the spot where it falls, and from that point as a center a number of increasing wavelets, each clearly defined by a line of light, will spread out in circles all around. The cause of this diffused phosphorescence was long the subject of curiosity, and was long unknown. But more than a hundred years ago in 1764 the light was stated by Ancaga to proceed from a minute and very lowly organism, now known as Noctiluca miliaris, and subsequent researches have confirmed this opinion. This Noctiluca is a spherical form of not more than one-fiftieth of an inch in size, with a slight depression or indentation at one point, marking the position of a mouth leading to a short digestive cavity, and having closed beside it a filament, by means of which it probably moves about. The sphere is filled with protoplasm, in which there is a nucleus and one or more gaps, or, vacuoles, such as nearly all the structure that can be discerned with the aid of the microscope in this simple organism. Nevertheless, this lowly form is the chief cause of that diffused phosphorescence which is sometimes seen over a wide extent of the ocean. How innumerable the individuals belonging to this species must therefore be, may be left to the imagination. Probably the Noctiluca is not rivaled in this respect even by microscopic unicellular algae which compose the red snow. By filtering seawater containing Noctilucy its light can be concentrated, 
and it has been found that a few teaspoonfuls will then yield light enough to enable one to read holding a book at the ordinary distance from the eyes about 10 inches. A singular and highly remarkable case of diffused marine phosphorescence was observed by Norton Skewell during his voyage to Greenland in 1883. One dark night, when the weather was calm and the sea smooth, his vessel was steaming across a narrow inlet called the Agalico Fjord, when the sea was suddenly observed to be illumined in the rear of the vessel by a broad but sharply defined band of light, which had a uniform, somewhat golden sheen, quite unlike the ordinary bluish-green phosphorescence of the sea. The latter kind of light was distinctly visible at the same time in the wake of the vessel, though the steamer was going at the rate of from 5 to 6 miles an hour. The remarkable sheet of light got nearer and nearer. When quite close, it appeared as if the vessel were sailing in a sea of fire or molten metal. In the course of an hour the light passed on ahead, and ultimately it disappeared in the remote horizon. The nature of this phenomenon Norton Skeweld is unable to explain, and unfortunately he had not the opportunity of examining it with the spectroscope. If we come now to consider the more partial phosphorescence of the sea, we find that it is due to animals belonging to almost every group of marine forms to echinoderms, or creatures of the sea urchin and starfish type, to annelid worm, to medusity, or jellyfish, as they are popularly called including the great domes and the silvery discs of the passage above quoted from Professor Martin Duncan, to tunicates, among which is the pyrosoma, to mollusks, crustaceans, and in very many cases to actinozoa, or forms belonging to the type of the sea anemone and the coral polyp. Of these we will single out only a few for more special notice. Many of the medusidae, or jellyfish, possess the character of which we are speaking. In some cases the phosphorescence is spontaneous among them, but in others it is not so, the creature requires to be irritated or stimulated in some way before it will emit the light. It is spontaneous, for example, in the Pelagia phosphorea, but not in the allied Pelagia noctiluca, a very common form in the Mediterranean. In both of the jellyfishes just mentioned the phosphorescence, when displayed at all, is on the surface of the swimming disc, and this is most commonly the case with the whole group. Sometimes, however, the phosphorescence is specially localized, in some forms, as in Palmandes pilocella and other members of the same genus, it is seen in buds at the base of tentacles given off from the margin of the swimming bell, in other cases it is situated in certain internal organs, as in the canals which radiate from the center to the margin of the bell, or in the ovaries, it is from this latter seat that the phosphorescence proceeds in Oceania pilotus. The form which gives out such a light that Ehrenberg compared it to a lamp globe lighted by a flame. The property of emitting a phosphorescent light, sometimes spontaneously and sometimes on being stimulated, is likewise exemplified in the tenophora, a group resembling the in the jelly-like character of their bodies, but more closely allied in structure to the actinozoa. But we will pass over these cases in order to dwell more particularly on the remarkable tunicate known as pyrosoma a name indicative of its phosphorescent property, being derived from two Greek words signifying fire body, as shown in the illustration pyrosoma is not a single creature, but is composed of a whole colony of individuals, each of which is represented by one of the projections on the surface of the tube, closed at one end, which they all combine to form, the free end on the exterior contains the mouth, while there is another opening in each individual toward the interior of the tube, such colonies, which swim about by the alternate contraction and dilatation of the individuals composing them, are pretty common in the Mediterranean, where they may attain the length of perhaps 14 inches, with a breadth of about 3 inches, 
in the ocean they may reach a much greater size. Mr. Mosley, in his Notes of a Naturalist on the Challenger, mentions a giant specimen which he once caught in the deep sea trawl, a specimen four feet in length and ten inches in diameter, with walls of jelly about an inch in thickness. The same naturalist states that the light emitted by this compound form is the most beautiful of all kinds of phosphorescence, when stimulated by a touch, or shake, or swirl of the water, it gives out a globe of bluish light, which lasts for several seconds, as the animal drifts past several feet beneath the surface, and then suddenly goes out. He adds that on the giant specimen just referred to he wrote his name with his finger as it lay on the deck in a tub at night and in a few seconds he had the gratification of seeing his name come out in letters of fire. Among mollusks, the best-known instance of phosphorescence is in the rock-boring thalas, the luminosity of which after death is mentioned by Pliny, but it is not merely after death that thalas becomes luminous a phenomenon perfectly familiar even in the case of many fish, especially the herring and mackerel. It was long before the luminosity of the living animal was known, but this is now a well-ascertained fact, and Panseri. An Italian naturalist, recently dead, has been able to discover in this, as in several other marine phosphorescent forms, the precise seat of the light-giving bodies, which he has dissected out again and again for the sake of making experiments in connection with the subject. A more beautiful example of a phosphorescent mollusk is presented by a sea slug called Philohobucephala. This is a creature of from one and a half to two inches in length, without a shell in the adult stage, and without even gills. It breathes only by the general surface of the body. It is common enough in the Mediterranean, but is not easy to see, as it is almost perfectly transparent, so that it cannot be distinguished without difficulty, by day at least, from the medium in which it swims, by night. However, it is more easily discerned, in consequence of its property of emitting light, when disturbed or stimulated in any way. It exhibits a number of luminous spots of different sizes irregularly distributed all over it but most thickly aggregated on the upper and under parts. These phosphorescent spots, it is found, are not on the surface, but for the most part represent so many large cells which form the terminations of nerves, and are situated underneath the transparent cuticle. The spots shine with exceptional brilliancy when the animal is withdrawn from the water and stimulated by a drop of ammonia. Among the annelid worms a species of nereus, or sea centipedes, has earned by its phosphorescent property the specific name of Noctilucanite shining, and the same property is very beautifully shown in Polyno, a near ally of the familiar sea mass. M. de Caterfages speaks with enthusiasm of the beauty of the spectacle presented by this latter form when examined under a microscope magnifying to the extent of a hundred diameters. He then found, as he did in the great majority of cases which he studied, that the phosphorescence was confined to the motor muscles and was manifested solely when these were in the act of contracting, manifested, too, not in continuous lines along the course of the muscles, but in rows of brilliant points, more interesting than the annelids, however, are the Alcyonarian actinozoa. The actinozoa have already been described as formed on the type of the sea anemone and the coral polyp, that island they are all animals with a radiate structure, attached to one end, and having their only opening at the other end, which is surrounded by tentacles. In the Alcyonarian forms belonging to this great group these tentacles are always eight in number, and fringed on both sides. Moreover, these forms are almost without exception compound, like the pyrosoma. They have a common life belonging to a whole stock or colony, as well as an individual life. Now, 
throughout the subdivision of the actinozoophosphorescences a very general phenomenon. Professor Mosley, already quoted as a naturalist accompanying the Challenger expedition, informs us that all the Alcyonarians dredged by the Challenger in deep water were found to be brilliantly phosphorescent when brought to the surface. Among these Alcyonarians are the sea pens mentioned in the quotation above made from Professor Martin Duncan. Each sea pen is a colony of Alcyonarians, and the name is due to the singular arrangement of the individuals upon the common stem. The stem is supported internally by a coral rod, but its outer part is composed of fleshy matter belonging to the whole colony. The lower portion of it is fixed in the muddy bottom of the sea, but the upper portion is free, and gives off a number of branches, on which the individual polyps are seated. The whole colony thus has the appearance of a highly ornamental pen. There is one British species, Penatula phosphorea, which is found in tolerably deep water, and is from 2 to 4 inches in length. The specific name again indicates the phosphorescent quality belonging to it. When irritated, it shines brilliantly. And the curious thing is that the phosphorescence travels gradually on from polyp to polyp, starting from the point at which the irritation is applied. If the lower part of the stem is irritated, the phosphorescence passes gradually upwards along each pair of branches in succession, but if the top is irritated the phosphorescence will pass in the same way downwards. When both top and bottom are irritated simultaneously two luminous currents start at once, and, meeting in the middle, usually become extinguished there. But on one occasion Panseri found that the two crossed, and each completed its course independently of the other. Those of our readers who have had opportunities of making or seeing experiments with the sensitive plant Mimosapodica will be reminded of the way in which, when that plant is irritated, the influence travels regularly on from pinnules to pinnules and penny to penny. In all the cases mentioned the phenomenon of phosphorescence is exhibited by invertebrate animals, but though rare. It is not an unknown phenomenon even in living vertebrates. In a genus of deep-sea fishes called stomias, Gunther mentions that a series of phosphorescent dots run along the lower side of the head, body, and tail. Several other deep-sea fishes, locally phosphorescent, seem to have been dredged up by the French ship Talisman in its exploring cruise off the west coast of northern Africa in 1883. During the same expedition, a number of deep-sea phosphorescent crustaceans were dredged up the phosphorescence being in some cases diffused over the whole body, in other cases localized to particular areas, in deep sea forms the phenomenon island in fact, so common, as to have given rise to the theory that in the depths of the ocean, where the light of the sun cannot penetrate, the phosphorescence of various organisms diffuse a light which limits the domain of absolute darkness, so much by way of illustration regarding the phosphorescence exhibited by animals, terrestrial and marine, but it ought to be noticed that there are also a few cases in which the same phenomenon is to be witnessed in plants. These are not so numerous as was at one time supposed, the property having been mistakenly ascribed to some plants not really luminous. In some instances the mistake appears to have been due to a subjective effect produced by brilliantly colored red or orange flowers, such as the great Indian cress, the orange lily, the sunflower, and the marigold. The fact that such flowers do give out in the dusk sudden flashes of light has often been stated on the authority of a daughter of Linnaeus, subsequently backed by the assertions of various other observers, but most careful observers seem to be agreed that the supposed flashes of light are in reality nothing else than a certain dazzling of the eyes. In another case, in which a moss, Schistostega osmundicea, has been stated to be phosphorescent, 
the effect is said to be really due to the refraction and reflection of light by minute crystals scattered over its highly cellular leaves, and not to be produced at all where the darkness is complete. Among plants, genuine phosphorescence is to be found chiefly in certain fungi, the most remarkable of which is Rhizomorphus subterranea, which is sometimes to be seen ramifying over the walls of dark, damp mines, caverns, or decayed towers, and emitting at numerous points a mild phosphorescent light, which is sometimes bright enough to allow of surrounding objects being distinguished by it. The name of vegetable glowworm has sometimes been applied to this curious growth. Among other phosphorescent fungi are several species of agricus, including the Aeolaries of Europe, A. gardnerium Brazil, and A. Lempus of Australia, and besides the members of this genus, Philophrachiarola, which is the cause of the phosphorescent light sometimes to be seen on decaying wood the touch wood which many boys have kept in the hope of seeing this light displayed. The milky juice of a South American Euphorbia e. phosphoria is stated by Martins to be phosphorescent when gently heated, but phosphorescence is evidently not so interesting and important a phenomenon in the vegetable as it is in the animal kingdom. The whole phenomenon is one that gives rise to a good many questions which it is not easy to answer, and this is especially true in the case of animal phosphorescence. What is the nature of the light? What are the conditions under which it is manifested? What purpose does it serve in the animal economy? As to the nature of the light, the principal question is whether it is a direct consequence of the vital activity of the organism in which it is seen, of such a nature that no further explanation can be given of it any more than we can explain why a muscle is contracted under the influence of a nerve stimulus, or whether it is due to some chemical PR. 